Welcome to Harper Audio Presents, the new podcast from HarperCollins Publishers, where we give you access to some of our favorite authors and their books. This is Erin Wicks from Harper Audio. I recently had the chance to sit down with Brian Payton, author of The Wind Is Not a River, on sale January 7th. Brian is a journalist and adventurer who has written for the New York Times, Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, and LA Times, and who traveled the globe in the writing of his two nonfiction books. He brings his sense of adventure to his first American novel, The Wind Is Not a River. Wind tells the story of John Easley, a journalist in World War II who becomes stranded behind enemy lines while reporting on the Japanese invasion of Alaska's Aleutian Islands. John's young wife, Helen, is not content to sit at home and wait for him to return, and the novel becomes a story of survival and the things we will do to be with our loved ones. Before we hear from Brian, let's listen to the opening scene of the novel, in which John awakens on a barren island in Alaska after falling from a crashing airplane. Here's The Wind Is Not a River. He sits up straight. When he does, it feels as if his head has a momentum all its own, as if it wants to continue its upward trajectory. A dull pain jabs his ribs. He places bare hands in the snow to keep from keeling over. The parachute luffs out behind him, a jaundiced violation against the otherwise perfect white. Fog so thick he can't see the end of the silk. For a moment he is anxious it might catch a breeze and drag him farther upslope. Planes whine and circle overhead, unseen. Easily flexes his hands. The gloves were ripped away by the velocity of the fall. He gazes down his long legs and moves his boots from side to side. He slides the flight cap from his head, runs fingers through his hair, checks for signs of blood. Finding none, he unclips the harness, rolls over on his stomach, pushes himself up. He is, unaccountably, alive and whole. And so it begins. This is Erin Wicks from Harper Audio, sitting down with Brian Payton, author of The Wind Is Not a River. Thank you for sitting down with us today. Thanks for having me. So my first question is regarding the opening scene of The Wind Is Not a River. Yes. Um, John Easley, a war correspondent, falls from a war plane, a World War II war plane, Mm -hmm. and finds himself on this bleak island in the Aleutian Islands off the southern coast of Alaska. And everything about the scene is fully realized. The character, right away, you get a sense of who he is, the place you feel like you're there. And I'm wondering, at what point in your writing process did you actually write this scene? Great question. Um, I took a couple of false starts at the beginning of this book, but uh, then I realized that I need to catapult myself into the story uh, in a way that is, uh, you know, very visual and very visceral. And uh, I wanted to get my character on that island, but have him not know whether he's going to survive or not in the passage. And so I, I had him thrown out of an airplane traveling through the clouds and fog, and he's not sure whether he's going to land in the sea and and die within a few minutes in the cold water, or whether he's going to actually make it to the island. And so, in the opening scene, he does hit ground, and he finally wakes up from his experience and looks around and breathes in the mist and the fog surrounding him and then starts to take in the environment around him. I wanted the environment to be really a, a character of its own right in this book, and so I wanted to have that introduction kind of, you know, smack you in the face. Now, how did you 
experience the Aleutian Islands in order to write this scene that seems completely like you're there? Well, um, I couldn't just make that up. I write nonfiction as well as fiction, and for me it's very important to uh, get the, those kinds of details right. So traveling to the Aleutian Islands is not an easy undertaking uh, at any time, but um, I, uh, one of my favorite writers, Peter Matheson, has always said that a good character shouldn't just step off the page, but a good character should walk out of the landscape. And when I heard him say that, I realized that that's the kind of writer I want to be as well. And uh, so I used that kind of uh, uh, approach to my nonfiction, and I brought that to my fiction as well. So I traveled to the Aleutian Islands, and I went uh, as far as I could out on the Aleutian chain, and I wanted to immerse myself in that landscape and to get the details right. I wanted to see what it felt like to walk on uh, a barren land where there are no trees, no bush of really any description, uh, but uh, there's a lot of grass, there's a lot of... Uh, actually, it's rye, it's beach rye, um, that goes on over these rolling hills, and I wanted to walk the beaches, poke my head into the caves, uh, stand in the surf as it comes ashore, and really uh, take in the environment so I could reproduce those details uh, for the reader. So it's, it is, it's a very remote place, like you're saying, and the story, the setting of the story, which is the Japanese invasion of the Aleutian Islands in World War II, is also fairly obscure as, as far as I know. I never learned about it mm -hmm. in my history as a student. How did you stumble on this story and why did you decide I need to write a story with this as the background? Right. Well, uh, the answer is partly contained in the question because uh, I lived in Alaska for uh, about three years in my early teens. And when I, I moved up there from what the Alaskans like to call the lower 48 states, and uh, when I got to Alaska and learned the, some of the details of the war in the Aleutians and the war in Alaska, I, I was flabbergasted. I thought, well, how come this story is not widely known? And I thought, you know, this would make a fantastic novel, even at that time. Um, I had since learned that you know some really great histories have been written about the war in Alaska, uh, but people don't know to, to go seek them out because this history is not popularly known. And there's some really good reasons for that. And so when, did I, when I wanted to answer for myself, why is it that we don't know about this battle? This battle to retake the, uh, the island of Attu in 1943 was one of the toughest battles of the Second World War. In proportion to the number of men engaged, it is surpassed only by Iwo Jima as the most costly American battle of the Pacific theater. Um, so why don't we know about it? Why, how come those soldiers came home to a country where people, they would say, well, where did you fight in the war? And they'd say, Alaska. And citizens back home would scratch their heads and go, I never heard of it. You know, what about Midway? What about the Solomon Islands? So everyone knows about the, the, uh, the, the fight for the islands in the South Pacific, but no one knows about the fight to survive and to recapture those islands in the North Pacific on our own territory. This is the only battle of World War II fought on American soil. No one knows about it. So I needed to write this story. So that, that's, I, I at an early age knew I wanted to write about it because I've kind of always known I wanted to be a writer. And then got serious about it in uh, 2001 and went to the Aleutians and then uh, I began the process of uh, making notes for and researching this book. It's been over 10 years now. Wow. Yeah. And, and what did you learn? Why, why does no one know about this? That's part of what uh, the readers will learn when they read the book. Um, but a, short, a shorthand answer is that you know, the government, uh, the military, gambled on the fact that they could contain um, the, uh, the Japanese occupation of the two outermost Aleutian Islands, hold the Japanese from taking more territory, and succeed without alarming the, um, the general U.S. population. 
at the time, it was very important for uh, North Americans, Canadians and Americans, to to think that, look, this war is not being fought on our soil. It's being fought over there. I mean, this was a rallying cry, over there. It was a song. Because it was okay to send our boys to Europe and to Asia and the South Pacific to fight the war to keep it from coming home. And so that was very popular in the mind of people, and it was an important propaganda slogan that helped us win the war. So the U.S. military gambled on the fact that they could contain this problem that was happening in Alaska, and history shows that they were right. What they did, however, is they kicked out some of the journalists who were actually in Alaska there to report on the war at the time, and uh, they sent them home. They wanted to fight this war and prosecute this battle in a kind of a media silence. Of course, they had to send out the odd bulletin and say, look, you know, there, there is a war going on up there, there is a battle, but they were very tightly controlled and they downplayed it in the media. And uh, the U.S. members of U.S. Congress were asking for more details. And one, at one point, one congressman said, you know, I want more details than the ones that are being provided to me by Tokyo Rose, which is the famous propagandist in Japan at the time who kept talking about it. So the government kept it as hush-hush as possible. It's impossible to contain the fact that this is happening, but they could downplay it in the media. And so the military censors and uh, the, uh, the relationship with the newspapers at the time, you know, the newspapers did not want to um, upset the, the battle that was going on there. So it was, a, it was a joint effort on the part of the media and the government to downplay what was happening in Alaska as much as possible. Well, clearly you've heavily researched this, and that's very apparent when you're reading the story, too, because the setting in time is just in every detail of the writing. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research, how you learned all these details, how you kind of put yourself into that place in time? Sure. Um, there are some great histories written about the war in Alaska. Um, the, the, the foremost of those is uh, the Thousand Mile War by Brian Gar Garfield. And uh, that's a, a, a seminal work on this. Uh, when I read that, I realized that I could actually, because of his excellent footnotes, go back and look at some more of the source material. And since he wrote that book, and it's been, oh, geez, I don't know, 20 or 30 years since that book came out, there have been other histories written. And now, because of the Internet, there's lots of information available online, um, diaries, journal entries, letters written by some of the servicemen who were actually uh, uh, assigned to Alaska at the time. In addition to that, it was important for me to um, bring in the fact that the U.S. government, the U.S. military, evacuated the Aleut population. The Aleuts are the Native Americans who uh, have always lived in the Aleutian Islands. And they evacuated them from the rest of the Aleutian Islands for their own safety, but they interned them in southeast Alaska and kept them in deplorable conditions during the war. Um, they essentially, you know, left them in a, an abandoned area uh, with very little to, to take care of themselves and fend for themselves in what was an alien environment to them. They had lived in a, in a world where there was abundant fish and, and, and uh, there were no trees and they had the run of their own land to a place where they were hemmed into a very deep, dark rainforest. And so I wanted to bring in those facts as well. Um, so a lot of research, reading the historical record of what happened to the U.S. troops, um, what happened to the Japanese troops on the island, uh, and, and so many of them died on the island. And then, of course, what happened to the, uh, the Aleut people. And then through all of that, who takes us through all of this information is a journalist who is, uh, uh, you know, in, in reality, the journalists who were in Alaska were, were kicked out. A couple of the journalists tried to sneak back in in reality. 
the government caught them and said, look, we told you, go back, you're not going in here, you could be prosecuted for what you're about to do. And they were sent home and then went on to do other stories. My story follows one of those journalists who would have succeeded in sneaking in, and he actually gets to see what's happening in the war. So he's one of our, our, our eyes, John Easley, into the story of the war in Alaska. And the second set of eyes is his wife, Helen Easley. And she gets to see all of the rest of the war, of what's happening behind the scenes, because John is contained in this, this fight for survival on, on, on that too. Helen does a lot of moving around, because she sets out to find her husband and bring him home. Let's listen to a bit of Helen's story. She is sinking through her clothing, the cot, the floor. Her mind says she's safe, lying in the clinic, but her gut tells a different tale. It's the blood, of course, lightly pulsing out the vein in tune with the rhythm of her heart. She has an overwhelming sense of déjà vu and connectedness, knowing that her very life is being pooled and preserved to be used by someone else far away. Flowing first into that glass jar, then the veins of someone who needs it even more, sinking, dripping out and down. She stops herself from imagining it will ever flow directly into his body. He would have to be gravely injured for that to occur, and he is not injured. No, she imagines it flowing into the arm of the soldier who fought to protect him, to protect us all. A lot of times I struggle with male writers writing from a female perspective. Sometimes I find it unconvincing, but I was kind of blown away by Helen's point of view. I'm wondering if this was ever a consideration for you when you were writing her point of view, if you ever found it a challenge to write from the female perspective or if it just happened naturally. Great question. Um, I found uh, for myself uh, John Easley sort of just walked onto the page, as they say, and he, he sort of naturally flowed from from uh, my own imagination and from the research that I had done. Um, I, had I had trouble with Helen earlier on in earlier drafts years ago, and um, I suppose it was because I hadn't invested enough of myself in Helen. And so I decided that you know, there was a distance between me and her, and I didn't understand what it was, and because I'd never really tried to write a female character before. And I realized that you know, the distance between us, men and women, between you know, uh, old people and young people between races is just so small. And I think that we stare at and, and sort of make so much of uh, the visual differences between us. And I realize that we're all just people. And so when I just let that veil fall away and put myself in her tight shoes that she's having to wear up, in, up in, as a showgirl in Alaska, I realize, oh, okay, those, those are tight. Those don't fit very well. And, and so it goes from there. It's just, just try to put yourself into her clothes, her situation, her uh, life history, and then uh, it, it opened a door for me that I was previously closed. Well, very successfully. Um, Thank you. You truly get so invested in these characters' lives. I'm, I wonder, is it different... I mean, clearly it's different, but in what ways is it different writing fiction from nonfiction? Because you've written two nonfiction books, and this is your first novel. The differences between writing fiction and nonfiction, uh, really good question. And it's difficult for some writers to make the leap back and forth from one to the other. But from the beginning, I always wanted to style my career as a writer on those writers who could do both, because I get something different from each kind of writing. The life of a writer, as everyone probably knows, is a very often lonely, solitary uh, endeavor. And there's a lot of time s spent at a computer, at a desk, you know, staring into the ether, uh, writing. 
With nonfiction, um, I choose topics that take me as far away from my personal life, my own experience, the things that make me comfortable as possible, because I want an, adve an adventure. And so that's the kind of nonfiction that attracts me. So I spend you know, uh, my time traveling to you know, Asia, to South America, to the Arctic uh, for those stories. And uh, that gets me out of my comfort zone. And I think it's important to do that when you're, when you're uh, approaching a project. And so I brought some of that sensibility with me to this project and went to a place that is very extreme and a very difficult place to go to. And so that sort of launched me into the world. And so I had my tools for my toolkit as a nonfiction writer to, to, uh, to bring that world alive. But then I got to invest uh, and open the door to a part of my imagination that I don't get to do in, in nonfiction, uh, and that is to invent. And so it's a wonderful uh, opportunity for me to take the real world that I've, I've uh, studied and bring it home to the readers to let them see it, but then to bring some of myself and uh, a part of my uh, imagination uh, forward that uh, um, I don't get to use in nonfiction. So it's, it's freeing in a lot of ways, but it's also um, it's, it's much scarier writing fiction. Because in the limits of nonfiction, I, I realize and I have a very orthodox approach to nonfiction. If you read a book about me or from me uh, or a magazine article and it's nonfiction, you can take it to the bank. That those events happened, those 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 lines of dialogue transpired. Um, there's nothing invented. With fiction, you know the, the limits are off. You you have to and can invent everything, and so it's a bit frightening. And so where to contain, where to begin is the question with fiction, and how to sort of you know take the whole wild wide world of possibilities and to distill it down into that fine elixir that becomes the story. So how did the distillation happen for this book? How did you narrow in on John Easley and Helen and telling their story? Uh, for me, it was um, survival. I wanted to write a survival story uh, because I, I wanted something as elemental as possible, something that is physical and something that is visceral. And I wanted John's survival story not to just be a physical survival story, but an existential survival story. I wanted him to have to struggle with survival, not just in the you know, eating and breathing and staying warm uh, aspects, which he does uh, for quite a, a long part of the book, but I wanted him to struggle with the, the reasons to be and why do we continue on. And so I set myself that goal. Um, so John came to me first, and then when I got him there, and within a, you know, a chapter, uh, I realized that you know there's so much about who he is that is contained in, reflected from, and uh, 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 sort of uh, made by someone else. And who is that someone else? And so that someone else became Helen. And I thought, well, who is this woman who could live with and would be with this man? And uh, then I found an equally strong character, somebody who was his equal, uh, and in some ways, uh, in some other parts of her life. Uh, very superior to him. Um, and so um, I had a, um, a binary relationship then, and that helped me, helped me through uh, making Helen, who was the woman who would be with him. And so I became equally intrigued with this woman and uh, started to get to know her as well. Well, this is a wonderful book. It's truly moving and fascinating and gripping, and I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to us today. Thank oh, thank you, you very I, much. I enjoyed it immensely. As we wrap things up, let's listen to one final clip. Here, Helen reflects on the night John left and his decision to go. In three years of marriage, John had told Helen he loved her perhaps a half dozen times. On each occasion, the noise in her head would suddenly cease 
leaving her profoundly centered and serene. Before he left, hearing those words seemed more important to her than anything else, more important than those things he took such care in providing, a home, companionship, security, a future they could build and share. These were the ways he spoke to her. She had not yet learned to hear him. And then his brother died. Following the news of Warren's death, John's silence was the sinkhole that appeared at the corner of their lives. She tried her best to pretend it wasn't there, his selfish, self-destructive grief. It ended up cracking the foundation, threatening to pull everything down. Work took him away for weeks on end, and he was distant when he returned. He let his sorrow consume them. The wind kicked up the night he left. The house creaked like an old ship at sea. They were on the couch, covered in an old wool blanket, when he announced that he'd be leaving again. It felt like she was falling. She fought the urge to reach out and hold on to him. He had no choice, he said, only duty. He must document some part of the war that claimed his brother, the part that seemed to have fallen into his lap. If someone isn't there to observe and record, capture it on the page, it will be as if it never happened. The sacrifices made on our behalf must be known before they can be remembered, he said. She replied that his family had already given enough. His duty was not to his dead brother, but to the living, to her and their life together. In a desperate attempt to make him understand, she said the words for which she continues to pay. If you leave now, don't bother coming back, because I won't be here if you do. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents, the new podcast from HarperCollins Publishers. Today we spoke with Brian Payton about his novel The Wind Is Not a River and listened to excerpts from the audiobook narrated by Mark Bromhall. Both will be available January 7th. We hope you'll join us again for more conversations with some of our favorite authors. Thank you for listening. This podcast also featured music by Willie Vallotton. <laughs>